0: Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, the podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. Arendt was a 20th century German-Jewish political theorist who thought boldly and provocatively about our shared political and ethical world. She was born in Germany in 1906, fled the Nazi regime in 1933, and came to the United States in 1941. She lived in New York until she passed away in 1975. Arendt published numerous books and in this podcast we will read them with you. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the director of academic programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College and authored many books, most recently The Pearls of Invention, Lying, Technology, and the Human Condition. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought, given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Every Friday, Roger Berkowitz hosts a virtual reading group for all of our members. Together, we have been reading Arendt since 2014. This podcast is based on what we are reading in our reading group. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. It is Arendt's major work in which she analyzes Nazism and Stalinism as the main totalitarian political movements of the first half of the 20th century. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. And now I hand it over to Roger who is going to read and analyze the next chapter for us. Hi Roger, it's good to see you.
1: Good to see you Jana, thanks for being here.
0: Today we are reading chapter one of Origins of Totalitarianism. It is titled Anti-Semitism as an Outrage to Common Sense, and Arendt sets out to define anti-Semitism and to dispel myths surrounding its origin and ties to totalitarianism. She defines it as an ideology. What is an ideology, according to Arendt? Could you speak a little bit to that basic term?
1: Yeah, um, thank you. Ideology is one of the more um, complicated ideas in the book, uh, and she Keeps coming back to it over and over again. It's, it's probably, uh, she probably writes about it in four or five places in the book, including in the epilogue, the, the final chapter that, uh, she adds to the second edition and all future editions called ideology and terror. Um, ideology is a Greek word from idea, idea and logos, the gathering or the logical, uh, truth of something. Um, and so an ideology is um, the truth of an idea. She thinks that ideologies only emerge in the 1870s. Now, that's a very specific idea. And a lot of people be like, what? How can you say that? But what she means by ideology is a pseudoscientific uh, doctrine that claims to be absolutely true and to have scientific validity but is clearly not and and couldn't possibly be. It's an attempt to explain the entirety of the world by one idea and offer scientific justifications for it. So she says there are two principal ideologies of the late 19th and then the whole 20th century. One is racism. Um, And that comes from the pseudoscience of social Darwinism and the claim of social darwinism is that uh there's a kind of survival of the fittest in such a way that genetically the fittest survive and that those who survive are therefore the best and so racism as an ideology is the idea that um certain races are better genetically biologically than others and they will come out on top and so whether it's aryan anti-semitism or, or white supremacy, racism. Racism is, a, is an ideology that says that there are better races and worse races. The worst races are corrupting society. They're the source of the problem in society, and they need to be exterminated in order to protect um, the health of society. The other main ideology is, 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 is communism or Bolshevism. The idea that there are certain classes which are corrupt, the bourgeoisie, and there are certain classes which have uh, are going to inherit the earth the proletariat and and that uh the bourgeoisie are the great danger and the proletariat have to be will eventually win and uh the job of of avant-garde communism is to simply speed up an already happening natural scientific process same with the nazis to speed up an already happening natural scientific process of racial domination so These are ideologies, they're pseudo-theories that give scientific defense and justification for um, the dominance of one group over another.
0: Great. And just to clarify another important term in Arendt's thinking before we dive into the chapter summary, I was thinking of the common sense from her title. Mm -hmm. Could you um, say a couple of things about what, what that means in her thought? And it keeps coming up in different in different writings, in different books. And it, it's the title of our chapter for today, Common Sense.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Common Sense is a, is that is an idea that Arendt writes a lot about throughout her life. She doesn't always use it in exactly the same way. So in her later work, Common Sense is going to be very much taken from Emanuel Kant's Gemeinsinn, literally Common Sense, and is, is, is about... She calls it the sixth sense that allows us to unite all the other five senses to provide an understanding of the world around us. It's sort of what guides us through all the different empirical uh, feelings we have through sight, touch, vision, smell, etc. And it's very important, therefore, for her theory of judgment and politics. In this chapter, common sense is is, is simply used to say, well, most people think you go to war to pursue interests, to get richer, you know, uh, or to or to get more powerful. And what she's saying here is, you know, there may have been reasons that the Nazis went to war for money and power, but to the extent they went to war in order to exterminate the Jews, who were a tiny, tiny group of people, didn't have much power in the world. Um, some had some money, but I mean, you could have taken their money. Um, The idea that you're going to go to war and create an entire world war and create a totalitarian system and seek to create a a, a world government um, based on the idea that the Jews are corrupting and threatening society and they have to be exterminated was such a colossal waste of resources, manpower, um, time, energy and money in order to solve a non-problem that it's simply an outrage to common sense. And so that if you want to understand not Jew hatred, but anti-Semitism as the motivating factor of the Nazi effort at the extermination of the Jews and totalitarian government, you have to understand something that has no common sense explanation. That's truly unprecedented and outside the realm of of, of of our common sense. Yeah, I mean, there have always been people who've attacked Jews, right? And there were Christians, there are pogroms, there's this, there's that. But that those were interests. We wanted to get them off our land. We we wanted we didn't like them. But this is something completely different. Even Jews we like, we have to kill because they're Jews. That makes no sense. And so um, when she says anti-Semitism is an outrage to common sense, she's trying to say, well, how do we understand this thing? And we have to therefore push ourselves past easy explanations and really ask the hard questions. How could this have happened?
0: Thank you very much. Common sense uh, made me think of community and that made me think of our upcoming conference in three weeks here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, Olin Hall in New York. If you can join us We have a link on our website to register. It takes place October 12th and 13th, coming up soon. Thank you, Roger.
1: Thank you so much, Jana. All right, so welcome. Welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz, the founder and director of the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, We're here for the virtual reading group. And we are reading Hannah Arendt's, I guess, in many ways, her masterwork. Certainly, a book that is widely regarded as one of the most important books of the 20th century: uh, "The Origins of Totalitarianism." We we discussed last week the four prefaces, the the original preface, and then the three prefaces to three volumes: anti-Semitism, imperialism, and totalitarianism. And today we begin reading, uh, Volume One of this great book written in three volumes. The three volumes, as I said, are anti-Semitism, imperialism, and totalitarianism. And understanding that three-part volume structure is important. The book is called The Origins of Totalitarianism, and yet you'd be hard-pressed to find in this book an answer to the question of what are the origins of totalitarianism. R.N. specifically says, I don't think there's an origin of it. What she says is there are multiple elements that crystallize into allowing something like totalitarianism as a new form of government to emerge in the 20th century. And what those elements are, you know, are never specifically stated. There are a number of them that clearly play a role and that encompass others within them. Anti-Semitism, which... Uh, we have to remember, is not just anti-Semitism, it's a form of racism. And so anti-Semitism, she says on Roman numeral 11 in the prefaces, is a secular 19th century ideology. So it's not a religious idea, it's secular, and it's an ideology, it's a kind of racism, which in name, though not in argument, was unknown before the 1870s. There's been Jew hatred for a long time, but anti-Semitism is new. And so, this first volume of of the book uh, is an attempt to articulate the ways in which a particular form of racism, in this case, anti-Semitism, a particular secular ideology, in this case, anti-Semitism, came to play a role in the rise of totalitarianisms, uh, both in in Germany and also in Russia, but mostly here in Germany. She says that the book is an attempt to understand something outrageous something which at first and even second glance appeared outrageous namely that something is small and seemingly unimportant in the world anti-semitism the jewish problem I mean, there's just not that many jews in the world right there's very few and and something is small and 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 for the most part jews didn't you know play a big role in world politics so how did this small group of people come to play such an outsized and important role in, in a war, in um, totalitarianism, and in death factories? And that's, uh, in many ways, what the book is setting out to, to understand, especially this first volume on antisemitism. It's to seek to comprehend, right? She says this book is an attempt to understand What seems outrageous. And remember the line that she repeats over and over again understanding or comprehension means the unpremeditated, attentive facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. We're trying to understand how this happened. And to do that, we need to understand that common sense doesn't help us, right? That's the title of this first chapter Anti Semitism as an Outrage to Common Sense. So what is common sense? She says on Roman numeral page seven, never has our future been more unpredictable, right? Never do we live in a world less predictable than we do now. And I mean, 60 years later or 70 years later, it's even more unpredictable. Never, she continues, never have we depended so much on political forces that cannot be trusted to follow the rules of common sense and self-interest forces that look like sheer insanity if judged by the standards of other centuries the point she's making here is that totalitarianism is completely anti common sense i mean if you're interested in living a comfortable life if you're living interested in pursuing your interests the last thing you want to do is go to war and spend enormous amounts of money and human capital, and effort simply to kill, you know, six million people or small people that doesn't matter much in the world. It doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't seem to follow normal, sane rules. It looks like insanity. And she says the forces of insanity that oppose common sense uh, can be summed up in the two ideas of scientific hope in human omnipotence versus despair at powerlessness. She says that scientific hope and despair at powerlessness are two sides of the same coin, progress and doom, science and determinism. Science tells us we can move into the future and create some sort of utopia. Doom or determinism tells us uh, that we can't change anything. And so these two forces sort of go back and forth, and yet we hope to and we believe in these ideologies that somehow will save us from doom and determinism and allow us to create a common world, a a better world. Uh, And so this is the source of the discrepancy, she says, between the unimportance of the Jewish question and the fact that it set the whole infernal machine in motion. And this is what she calls an outrage to our common sense. And so she begins this chapter by asking a simple question, which is to say that, you know, is anti-Semitism important, right? It shouldn't be. It should be this little itty bitty thing. And yet, is it important? And she says, most people have said it's not important. You know, it's important to the Jews, but, you know, they just can't believe that anti-Semitism would actually be important to the rise of Nazism. And she says that most people see it either as an accident, right? You know, it's just an accident that anti-Semitism was chosen by the Nazis as as an ideology. Or they say that it was simple propaganda used to sway the masses, but it wasn't central to Nazi ideology and to the Nazi worldview. She says that our outrage at what happened and our belief that, it's just not commonsensical uh, for anti-Semitism to be so important, leads us to minimize it. But she says we need to take it seriously. She says we need to understand that anti-Semitism was actually the driving force in many ways of Nazi ideology. And so the next hundred pages of this book are an attempt to take anti-Semitism seriously and understand it. Okay. How do you do that? Well, The first step is to understand what anti-Semitism is not. And she says, we've been harmed in our attempts to understand anti-Semitism and its importance because we have four, what she calls, hasty explanations of anti-Semitism. In a sense, four mistakes. And these four mistakes, she says, are what most people believe was the source of Nazi anti-Semitism. In some, some, you know, some believe one, some believe two, some believe three, some believe four. But these are the four that most people accept. And she thinks they're all wrong. And so the first chapter is simply clearing the ground of what she considers the wrong explanations. And I'll tell you, most of us are going to be upset that she says some of these things are wrong. Because she's going to challenge some of our Common sense. So what are the four wrong explanations? The first one says that anti-Semitism is related to nationalism. In essence, um, uh, whether in Germany or in the United States or or France, wherever there's anti-Semitism, it's because of a rising nationalism that sees Jews as foreigners and a threat to the nation. And she says this is simply wrong, historically wrong, factually wrong. She says on page three, the fact is that modern anti-Semitism grew in proportion as traditional nationalism declined. If you look at this period of of history, uh, it's a period of imperialism, and thus not nationalism. It's a period of internationalism. Both Nazi socialism and Bolsheviks socialism were internationalist movements that had a very weak connection to either. German nationalism or Russian nationalism. In fact, they were internationalist movements. And so to the extent they did use nationalist rhetoric, and they did, they used it not as a motivating force of their ideology, but simply on um, not convinced members of the populace or on fellow travelers, but not for the Nazis or the Bolsheviks themselves. And so she says, just it's just simply factually wrong to think of, of anti-Semitism as uh, a product of nationalism. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the chapters, uh, both in chapter two, but also later in the book, uh, in the chapters on imperialism. The second mistake mistaken explanation of anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism emerged because Jews had power and people were jealous of that power. She says, "Common sense teaches that antisemitism is a reaction to the Jews' great wealth and power." And again, she says, "This is simply factually wrong." She says, "The Jews, to the extent, I mean, most Jews were were poor and 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 powerless. There were some Jews in the 17th and 18th and early 19th centuries that did become wealthy, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when anti-Semitic parties emerged throughout Europe was precisely at the time when these wealthy Jews were losing their power. And, and they were losing it for very particular historical reasons, which, again, we'll go into um, uh, in, in chapter two, especially next week. Uh, so she says, well, OK, that seems strange. Why is it that anti-Semitism emerges not when Jews are powerful, but when they're losing their power? And she here turns to uh, the great French social thinker, Alexis de Tocqueville, and she quotes him at length uh, on page four. And she says that according to Tocqueville, the French people had hated the aristocrats in France about to lose their power more than it had ever hated them before. So as long as the aristocrats held power Their wealth and their privilege weren't really hated, but they were respected. It was only once they began to lose their power that their wealth came to be seen as without visible function, and that's much more intolerable because nobody can understand why it should be tolerated. The basic insight that Tocqueville has here is one that he repeats in his more famous book, at least here in the United States, Democracy in America, uh, on pages 17 to 18 in my edition 1718, but in the introduction, where he says, quote, it is not the use of power or the habit of obedience that depraves men, but the use of power that they consider illegitimate and obedience to a power they regard as usurped and oppressive. It's a very deep insight of Tocqueville that Aron here elevates. We don't hate power. We hate unjust power. And as long as the aristocracy had power that people understood and were within their understanding of why the aristocracy was, was noble and, and had power, they accepted it. And the same, she says for the Jews, we didn't hate the Jews when they actually had power. We came to hate the Jews when they were losing their power. And so, um, you know, these, raises really interesting questions for today, you know, Why is there a rising anti-Americanism? People say, oh, because of America power. I think it's much more interesting. It's because we're at a time when America is losing its power. Why is there a rise in anti-intellectualism or anti-expert sentiment? Oh, because the experts and intellectuals have power. No, it's because we're living in a time in which the experts and the intellectuals are losing power. Um, And so... This is an important part of all of RN's work for those of you who study RN. Power for RN is not something to be run away from. Power is valuable. There's a rational instinct that power has a certain function and is of importance, she says. Um, it's only when power is being lost that suddenly power seems unjustified. The third, okay, these those first two explanations and why they're wrong are largely factual and i don't think they're super controversial the next two however are controversial and they are going to cause some discomfort the third reason she says the wrong reason that anti-semitism the wrong explanation for the rise of anti-semitism as an important part of the rise of of totalitarianism is that anti-semitism emerged because Jews were seen as scapegoats. So a a scapegoat is is a very simple idea, namely that there was no reason the Jews were chosen. They were simply chosen because the Nazis needed somebody. And the the idea behind this, she says, is best expressed in a joke that circulated uh, amongst the Jews um, in Germany at the time. And that was actually made into a play in a concentration camp uh, at the time, and it sort of became famous for that. The joke goes very simply. Uh, An anti-Semite, you know, goes, the Jews uh, are are responsible for all the problems in the world. We must kill the Jews. And someone answers him, no, no, not the Jews. It was the bicyclists. And the anti-Semite goes, why the bicyclists? And the other guy goes, why the Jews? The force of the joke is, is quite simple. Why the Jews? It's arbitrary. It implies that anyone might have been the scapegoat. The bicyclists, the Jews, you know, the people who wear hats, uh, the people who, you know, are right-handed. It could be anyone. The victim is purely innocent and arbitrary. Now, she says this is simply wrong. There has to be a reason that the Jews were picked. And And the reason there has to be a reason is because... Before the anti-Semites take power, they actually have to persuade the people that they're right. They have to make arguments. The arguments don't have to be true, but they have to be persuasive in some way. And and so there must be some non-arbitrary reason that the anti-Semitic parties could say the Jews were the cause of all world problems and not just the bicyclists. And so, part of the effort of her book is going to be to try and understand that reason. Now, she says that this is this refutation of scapegoat theory is 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 universal. It all all anytime anyone uses scapegoat theory, you should be suspicious of it. She says, in the particular case of the Nazis, there was, however, a reason to actually think maybe the scapegoat theory in this particular instance was true, and she calls this the totalitarian exception. Namely, that because in totalitarian states, like in Nazi Germany, any Jew, simply because they were a Jew, could be arrested, put in a concentration camp, and killed, Um, there is a certain kind of arbitrariness to this terror. You know, whether you're a Jew who works for the Zionists or you're a Jew who fought in World War I for the Germans and sees themselves as a German nationalist, you can still be terrorized and killed and this arbitrariness suggests that the jews were purely innocent and that they were being killed simply because they were scapegoated uh, in an arbitrary way but Arendt again says even here there must be some basic reality to the scapegoat's guilt so that at the beginning before the terror emerged you could convince the people that it was necessary to institute the terror in order to Um, carry out a specific political ideology. And so she says, once again, you have to ask yourself, why the Jews? It can't just be arbitrary. Now, I just want to be very clear. There are people who say, Arendt is simply what we call today, blaming the victim, right? Well, to say that there was a reason the Jews were chosen means that the Jews themselves were at fault. And she is specifically not doing that, but you can understand why some people might say she is. What she's saying is, look, it's not the Jews fault. It's not that they did things wrong. It's not like they're, we should blame them. No, the people who to blame are the Nazis. But that doesn't mean that there weren't things the Jews did that upset other people. And that could be used by the Nazis. And if we want to understand anti-Semitism, we have to ask the hard questions. Why the Jews? By the same token, today, if you want to understand anything, homophobia, transphobia, racism, you can't just say it's arbitrary. You have to understand, you have to try and ask the hard question. The last false or wrong reason that she offers is what she calls the fallacy of eternal anti-Semitism. Eternal anti-Semitism is simply the idea that people have always hated the Jews and they've always persecuted the Jews. And so this is simply nothing new. She says it was obvious why the Nazis were attracted to the thesis of eternal anti-Semitism because it took away their responsibility. If people throughout history have hated the Jews, huh! No problem for us to hate the Jews. So we're not responsible. We're no different than good Christians and, you know, good Turks and good people in the austria hungarian Empire and good, you know, people in in the Arabian countries. So she says the Nazis had every incentive to embrace the idea of eternal anti-Semitism. But she says what was fascinating was how the Jews embraced the thesis of eternal anti-Semitism. She says on page seven, as a desperate misconception, the Jews understood that if they believed in the theory of of eternal anti-Semitism, that became what she says, quote on page seven, an excellent means for keeping the people together so that the assumption of eternal anti-Semitism would even imply an eternal guarantee of Jewish existence. You have to see what she's trying to say here. There's a Zionist desire for eternal anti-Semitism because it proves the need for Jewishness and thus for Zionism. Again, I I, I, I understand the provocative nature of her argument, but we have to take it seriously. For the same reason, in a world of assimilating Jewry in the nineteenth, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century if you wanted to protect Jews from assimilating and preserve Judaism, one good technique would be to say you're assimilating to an anti-Semitic culture and therefore you should stay Jewish. Similarly, around questions of race or homophobia or whatever today, if you want to preserve your culture, you want to assume that racism of any type is universal and eternal and can't be changed. And there are many people making that argument today. And Arendt is saying that the danger of the eternal anti-Semitism thesis is first that it absolves the Nazis and others of responsibility. And second, against what the Jews thought or hoped, it doesn't preserve Judaism. It threatens it with genocide because it allows for the justification of anti-Semitism as simply normal. It normalizes it. Both, therefore, these last two explanations, which she says are wrong, the scapegoat theory and eternal eternal anti-Semitism, she says on page 8, deny specific Jewish responsibility and refuse to discuss matters in specific historical terms. Now, again, I understand this is a controversial argument she's making, um, and I'm Looking forward to talking about about it with you, but I just want us to understand it. The last page or so of the chapter is an attempt, is is a looking forward to much later in the book to the sections on totalitarianism. But what she says is that you have to understand that Plato and the Sophists got into an argument. Now, the Sophists were, um, you know, sophomore wise fools, but the Sophists were the lawyers. And they were the ones who made arguments in in the Greek uh, assembly uh, for particular ideas. And they were good at turning facts around like lawyers are, using facts and changing the story and manipulating facts to tell a story. And what she says is that Plato sought to oppose the Sophists and argue against the Sophists um, because the Sophists denied truth and elevated opinion, and Plato wanted to create a society based on truth, but the sophists understood that everything in politics is about opinion. Arendt is actually closer to the sophists here than to Plato. She thinks there is no truth in politics, that all politics is about opinion. But what she says is with the modern sophists, the sophists, the anti-Semites, their aim is not to attack truth, but to attack reality. They destroy facts and reality, and in doing so, comprehensibility. They attack the dignity of human being, which is to comprehend. And so if we if we accept these false explanations for anti-Semitism, because they make us feel better, because they don't make us ask the hard question about Jewish responsibility, she says, we fail to comprehend anti-Semitism, and we fail in our humanity. We fail to be human. And she thinks the only way to resist the evils of anti-Semitism is to comprehend it. Remember, comprehension is the unpremeditated facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. And resisting of reality requires comprehending it even when it's outrageous and even when it's uncomfortable. So what is the source of anti-Semitism if these are the four wrong arguments? Well, that's what the next three chapters of the book on anti-Semitism are going to be about. And she says that chapter two is going to be about the nation state and and certain equivocations around uh, Jewishness in the falling apart of the nation state in the late 19th century. The biggest one, just so you can think about what you're going to read for chapter two for next week, is this idea that on the one hand, the nation state wanted to make everyone equal and thus make Jews equal. On the other hand, they needed the Jews to be different and they needed thus to give the Jews privileges to not be equal. And the Jews embraced that equivocal status because they wanted some equality, but also some inequality because they wanted to resist assimilation and they wanted to be different. And that this equivocation, she says, leads to incredible dangers um, for jews and the jews got benefits from it but also great danger came from it and then in chapter three where she talks about jews and society she's going to talk again about how um, there came to be this idea of the jew uh, which again was greatly dangerous but also had certain advantages and thus jews embraced it for particular reasons and then the fourth chapter, the last chapter, is an account of the Dreyfus Affair in France, uh, which is, in her mind, a dress rehearsal for the entirety of the Holocaust. And so that's how this first book on antisemitism is going to look. Uh, but today is simply mostly the negative part, how we free ourselves from these misconceptions and learn to ask the hard questions to comprehend and thus resist uh, reality, whatever it must be, in this case, antisemitism. All right. All right. Um, I look forward to the discussion. Recall there's two ways to to engage the discussion. One is through the chat, which I see is open and already active. Please do be respectful of others, which means you can disagree with them, of course, but disagree with their ideas. Don't attack them as a person. It's very important. Look, we're talking about very complicated issues here. Anti-Semitism, racism, transism, all these things can come up please be respectful of all of us and all of your fellow uh, participants. You can also um, go down to the uh, reactions button, click on raise hand, raise your hand and engage in the discussion in that way. Um, I'm going to make an effort to uh, call on people in ways that bring in many different voices. So I'll go in order to the extent I can, but I encourage people to, um, to participate in the public discussion. I know it can be uncomfortable. I know it's scary, especially around complicated issues. But um, we'll treat everyone with respect, and I and I encourage you to participate. Okay, uh, Peter.
2: Thanks. I'm also a bicyclist,
1: by the way. Um, <laughs> we
2: have many identities, right? Yes, we all do. Uh, it, it's a tough chapter. Um, you're doing a great defense. I mean, part of me wants to beg the question. Also, why do we have to take a rent seriously? Well, you we simply said is we must. Uh, I don't expect that to be otherwise from the rent Center. But um, this, is a, this is a, I, I don't get it. Uh, they blame, and well, I'm not blaming the victim, but they're responsible. I think that's a tough uh, circle to square. Um, I, I think you, you if you say a woman is responsible for being raped, I don't know how that's not blaming her in some way uh, are, are people responsible for being lynched or a 100,000 other ways in which folks of color have been demeaned in the not eternal history of this country, but a heck of a long history of racism in this country. And I think similarly, it's not a dart that was thrown that picked the Jews rather than the bicyclist. The joke is actually to say, yeah, if one was serious about this, they both would be seemingly a dart throw. I don't think it's a proof of anything. I think, if anything, it's the proof of the absurdity. But the absurdity isn't absurd because of an eternal, and it's not eternal, of course, it's an incredibly long narrative. A narrative that isn't just a narrative told by some poet in some far corner of the universe. It's a narrative taught by the central premise of European society, which is Christianity. So this is, I don't get the surprise. I don't get the what she's trying to uncover and trying to figure out how the Nazis and how could they have picked this group of people. And again, some of these compromises about the death camps. The death camps certainly weren't, quote unquote, non-profit, but they weren't lacking in profit. They made money at many of the camps. Uh, they didn't make enough money to justify them. But it was a compromise of a whole bunch of things. You had ideologues, you had business interests, you had true politicians, you had people who wanted homes that they didn't have. There were a hundred ways in which the Nazis used, again, the Nazis, who are the Nazis? That's a simplification. The ideologues employed the various ways in which people are motivated to help along with their ideological desire to fight two wars, a war against... uh, uh, on the ground in military fashion, and a war against the Jews, who they had in an ideological way a belief were the true summa the thing of all things that's causing evil in the world, and most evil of all was the idea that all people are equal. Uh, again, this is this theory of uh, one historian I heard at uh, the at Yad Vashem who says that's the horror that uh, the Jews were posing. The Nazis had a totally different theory, and their theory was order and disorder and disorder was being done by those who were trying to claim that the lesser people should be equal. When the Nazis knew only the Superman, the Aryan race should be those on top. And so they truly were evil, if you believe that ideology. They were upsetting the order of the universe by letting lesser people have an equal access to power, to wealth, and to property, and all sorts of other things, when that was antithetical to the Nazi ideology based on this this theory. So there are tons of lots of reasons <laughs> that pre-existed yeah. and I, I think it's really hard to buy that this isn't a blaming of the victim most of the things you could claim the jews were doing that might anger Aryans, anger germans anger white people angry europeans were as they are in this country projections of the oppressor upon the victim they were put into positions that uh, the basically the oppressor had created to personify the very thing that they were hating the jew for uh certainly the, the one of the greatest examples of this is creating non-human beings out of jews and therefore proving that they're non-human beings as though that's the status they were in before the nazis put them through concentration camps and it's the same as you know imagine saying a, a person of color is uppity when they're actually being re- you know asking for some respect this is a projection of the white oppressor this is I, I, i'm not getting this particular piece here i'm interested in what's to come in the next chapters but I don't think this is a head scratcher and I'm not sure why I have to take it seriously
1: in this chapter then. So first of all, I want to thank you for, um, you know, asking the question. Um, It's a good question. Um, And, you know, uh, and I think a lot of people would, would shy away from it, uh, you know, because it's the RN center and I appreciate that you didn't. And, uh, and so uh, thank you. Um, First of all, so I'm going to a couple things because I think it is a good question I'm going to take it seriously. Um I wasn't I hope I didn't say and if I did uh I I I, I take it back then anyone must take RN seriously. I think that if we want to understand her argument we need to take her seriously. Uh that's that's uh, I, I hope clear. Um and secondly her argument is that if we actually want to understand what happened, we have to risk seeing beyond common sense and risk uh, uncomfortable uh, inquiries and unco- uncomfortable decisions. But I, you know, if, you, you can certainly disagree with Hannah Arendt, and um, and I'm not here to tell you you can't. So there's no must take her seriously. I think Hannah Arendt is worth taking seriously in order to provoke us in order to make us think in order to make us question our unthought prejudices and our unthought opinions because she does that quite powerfully after which you can either hold on to your former opinions you can amend them in some way or you can say you know what i've been convinced by Arendt, but and, and and a whole lot of things in between so there's no must and and i'm not trying to offer a defense of arent um i'm trying to help those of us on the call to understand her, which I think is a valuable exercise because I think she's a, a thoughtful and brilliant and non-traditional thinker uh, who makes us think beyond our own pre- preconceptions. That's the first. The second is you, you made a quick comment about how some of the death camps were profitable. There are, there, there are, there are different kinds of camps. There's concentration camps, there's work camps and there's death camps, work camps, you know, one can at least make the argument that maybe they have some value, but death camps—it's hard to make that argument. Um, and, and I don't know any economist, uh, uh, and certainly she didn't. She cites a number when she talks about it um, that, that that would make that argument. And and that was—that's uh, all I was speaking to. But let me come to the the key, you know, uh, part of your 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 question, which I think is the important part, and which I spend a lot of time talking about with my students when I do teach this text, which is that blaming the victim, that, that that seeking to understand Jewish responsibility is no different than blaming the victim. You know, Arendt was attacked for this again 13 years later after her book, Eichmann and Jerusalem, right? Where in one part of the book, she talks about the way in which certain Jewish leaders, both in the Unweta and in, 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 the, in, in Jewish communities and in the camps and, and themselves, the, the, the kapo, um, um, bear some responsibility in the whole thing. She makes it clear again that she's not blaming them for it, but she says they bear some responsibility. And in that instance, she was widely, widely criticized for blaming the victims. Less so in this book. Why is it not blaming the victims? I mean, could it be? Maybe. But um, I think that uh, the reason I think it's not is that she doesn't think that the Jews should be held, res- held responsible for the Holocaust. She doesn't think that, any, that, that the Jews are to blame for discrimination against Jews. She doesn't think that the Jews are to blame for the murder and the, and the and the and the raping of Jews. And she thinks that would be absurd. And she says it. So what does she think? What does it mean to say that they are, in some ways, responsible? And and is responsible uh, a meaningful term in this sense? Well, what she means is that a well, couple a couple things. One, that the Jews gained something from taking on some of these positions that were also embraced by anti-Semites. If an anti-Semite says the Jews are different, the Jews at times said, you're right, we are different. Why? Because that was how they could justify living separately and preserving Jewish culture in an age of assimilation and equality. Now, that's not something that they should be blamed for, right? She doesn't put any moral blame on them. But she says their willingness to, in a sense, embrace a kind of Jewish separateness is one of the reasons they could be attacked by those who are blameworthy. It's not just random, right? A group of people who don't want to be seen as separate and get certain um, privileges where they can, you know, not follow the laws against working on Saturdays or Sundays or eating different foods or things like that. She says these were reasons. Now, doesn't mean they're good reasons. Certainly doesn't mean they're blameworthy. Um, Arendt is not a fan of assimilation. She thinks there's good reasons to not assimilate. But she thinks that if we're going to understand what happened, we have to understand the ways that there became incentives for Jews to embrace precisely the kinds of of desires for separateness, difference, uniqueness, even blood difference, which we'll read about in chapter three. That the Nazis used, and again, not in a way that the Jews are blamed for what happened, but Maybe, she says, we need to rethink what it means to be Jewish today, and that's going to require us understanding the hazards of simply embracing privilege, indifference, and separation in an age of equality. And so part of it is simply we have to understand it in order to be able to resist it. But also simply, as that's what it means to be human, is to try and actually understand what happened, not simply give ourselves um, uh, illusions that make us feel better because that won't in any way allow us to prevent it from happening again in the future. So that's my uh, attempt to, to, to answer your question, Peter. And it's a good question because my guess is that the vast majority of us agree with you.
2: I don't want to to challenge you on the other points about the camps. I never said they were profit making. I just said there was profit to be made in instances, although net was not profit. But I think the issue of here claiming and I know there's so many hands up, so I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. But it's tough because it's highly complex, is that in effect, it says Jews are responsible insofar as one. They were separate. They weren't separate. They were separated. They were often kept in. I mean, the word ghetto began with Jews in in Italy. Jews were kept out of societies. They were kicked out of England in the 1200s. I mean, (laughs) this is absurd. This is saying you're separate. No, we were separated. Uh, I happen to be Jewish. I happen to be a child of survivors. My my parents were not in camp, so I'm not feeling sensitive on that. But I do think there's an insensitivity by Hannah Arendt to make this claim. And, And she is not provocative, isn't good enough as an excuse for this claim. It's highly injurious. Because, one, I'm not looking to be separate, and I'm also not looking to assimilate and deny who I am just to please the majority. This is a, th- That's not to say these behaviors might not set off a response by a majority or a power group. But that's a different thing from a behavior and a responsibility. Responsibility yeah. suggests the well, person she, themselves she, is doing she, you know, this and all. therefore deserves some blame. I don't know how you can disassociate or disconnect blame from responsibility. I won't
1: won't respond no matter what you say. I'm sorry. I know there's too many people waiting. One is moral and and one is not. Um, She's not saying, uh, she makes a distinction between Jew hatred and anti-Semitism, right? Um, Yes, there's been Jew hatred way, way back, but it didn't lead to totalitarianism, right? And what she's talking about here is a particular kind of ideology that leads to totalitarianism and that she thinks is new and is different so you know the idea that it goes all the way back she you know she thinks that can have rhetorical value um, for the nazis and and for other things but i think but but if we want to understand what's happening that's not going to help us very much you know again all i can all i can say is i hear your point uh as we read chapters 2 3 and 4 and then even Um, Five and six in the next section on imperialism, you know, where she talks about racism and is going to make similar comments about racism. What I'll say is she's attempting to uh, understand what's going on. And she thinks that it's simply uh, uh, we're evading reality uh, to take these explanations on. Uh, I'm sure it will come up again. So I'm going to stop there and let some other people ask questions as well. Hannah, you want to go
0: next? Sure, Um, I am just wondering in terms of thinking about totalitarianism, whether we should be thinking more broadly. And um, I'm thinking about Arnold J. Toynbee in an essay called The Destruction of Poland. He discusses Germany's attempt to exterminate the Poles before the first world war through starvation and other means, and also Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, discussing this region. Poland, Belarus, Lithuania, Ukraine, and how both Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia uh, were acting against independent states in this corridor. And if you think about it in terms of a through line with the current war in Ukraine, um, it it seems to be part of a much broader picture. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that.
1: No, that's a great question. Um, uh, I don't know the B. book. I haven't read it. I've heard of it. Uh, the Snyder book, Bloodlands, I I, I do know well, and um, it's a great book. And and by the way, he he largely reads uh, a lot of what's going on in the Ukraine through Hannah Arendt in, in in Bloodlands. Um, you know, you're right. Uh, it wasn't. There were there were other groups, and other groups that were you know. Um, that were targeted by the Nazis. Uh, Poles, um, uh, Roma, um, uh, homosexuals, um, uh, sick people, mental sick, physically handicapped, or, or other, you know, camp, uh, and many others. Um, it's, it's not unimportant, and I think any uh, meaningful account of the Holocaust uh, has to consider those. Her account is based though on what the Nazis said and wrote. And if you um read what the Nazis said and wrote, the, the centerpiece of their ideology was against the Jews. Um it wasn't against the poles, right? They didn't like the poles, and they saw the poles also as inhuman in some way. But the centerpiece was against the Jews, and that has to be taken seriously. By the way, um, if you look at, what's it called, Um, neo-Nazi websites and neo-Nazi groups in the United States today, and you go to their public websites and you read also what they write in private to their followers, I'm talking about anti-black racist groups in the United States. And anti-trans groups and anti-homosexual groups and anti-immigrant groups. They almost all begin with anti-Semitism. It was the Jews are at the root of it. There's a there's there's there seems to be um some deep, deep need for the Jews to be at the source of almost all wildly, rabidly racist groups. Now, one answer to that is Peter's, right? It's eternal anti-Semitism. There's no explanation for it except that. Rn is telling you, or asking you to at least hold out the, you know, to think about the fact that there is a reason for it. Not that the Jews are bad, but you have to understand why the Jews are in a position in society that they're the ones Being targeted, and they're the ones providing the justification even for targeting these other groups. And that's what she's trying to figure out in these books, in these chapters. So you're right, there are these other groups that are killed and attacked. And yet the argument she's making, and I think she's right, but again, you know, we can talk about it, is um that the foundation for it is an ideological anti-Semitism thank you all very much. Look, these are complicated issues. I I really appreciate the pushback. I like that. Let's keep it going. And um, let's enjoy reading and find value in reading Hannah Arendt. And we'll see you next week, reading chapter two. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and Auf Wiedersehen.